0: You're listening to why we do what we do. All right. Welcome to why we do what we do. I'm going to be your, uh, your employed host, Abraham, <laughs> and I'm going to be your newest only fan subscriber, Shane. Yay. And so, <laughs> Hey Shane, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about the world's oldest profession. Massage therapist? Cave painting. Oh, okay. <laughs> U- YouTuber? Yeah, YouTubers.
1: <laughs> hey, listen, in, in, in my kid's world, that is the oldest profession. They don't know They don't know beyond that. So, yeah. no, we're going to talk about sex work today, and uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about prostitution, but mostly what we want to do is we want to kind of dig into the idea of what sex work is. We want to answer that question. We want to talk about how it started or when it started. We can maybe assume that sex work probably started very early on before written records. I imagine that there was probably sex for trade, sex for goods and stuff like that that maybe existed. And we want to talk a little bit about what the current state of sex work looks like, while also talking about some of the concerns that come up with mental health in sex work. We talk about STIs in sex work and kind of all that stuff. There's a lot to unpack here, I think.
0: It's going to be a very interesting sort of topic, and I think... It almost goes without saying at this point that this could be something, every topic we tackle could be a podcast amount of work if we were going to go into it in depth. So we're going to do our best to cover as comprehensively as possible what we can about this topic in a single episode and answer those questions, as you said. And if this is your first time listening to the episode, welcome. We are a psychology podcast, and so we tackle all things related to psychology sex work is a thing that people do and therefore related to psychology mm-hmm. and worth understanding how and why it happens. And I guess what some of the controversies there are around this and, and sort of how, how to talk about those and address those concerns that people have. But that being the case, given that we are in a white Western industrialized nation, there might be some people who have some specific concerns about a topic of this nature. So we do have some disclaimers for you, of course.
1: Before we get into the episode proper, we wanna make sure that you are aware that we do talk a little bit about trafficking, human trafficking in this, and we do talk about violence towards women. Those are some stats that we talk about within this. We don't condone these things at all. We are accounting for a history that really makes this type of work super complex. And you'll see when we get into the topics that do touch on human trafficking within sex work and what that looks like, you'll see what I mean, but we are not condoning human trafficking. We are not condoning violence towards women or violence towards anybody working in sex work. You're going to find that most of this episode does talk about prostitution because that is the most well-documented and makes up a large portion of sex work, but it's not the entire industry. So just keep in mind that even though we are going to reference prostitution a lot, that is not going to be the entirety of the field of sex work.
0: So listen with discretion. We are going to do our best to handle this tactfully. We are going to be making jokes because that helps lighten the mood, but nevertheless, this topic may not necessarily be suitable for listeners who are triggered by such topics, who maybe have a history of experience or trauma around sexual violence, or for little ones for whom you do not want them hearing this. You might want to skip this and, and catch us next time around, but for those of you who have some interest in learning more about this topic, I think that there's a there's a lot to really gain from this, and I think it'll be a fascinating discussion. And so let's go ahead and get into it. And we must begin, of course, with our definitions.
1: Yes. So for the purposes of this episode, we are talking about sex. So what is sex? Probably not going to be good to know for this episode because sex work doesn't always have to do with sex. But sex is usually the act of some kind of procreative type of act i mean it's it's hard to say sex is very complex and at the end of the day we'll talk more about like kind of why we don't really need a definition for sex but we do need a definition for sex work and sex work is going to be some kind of resource exchange that includes the exchange of sexual services or performances or products for some form of compensation and that can include direct physical contact or there can be contactless exchanges like cam work or something along those lines but The important thing is, is they say sexual services, not the act of sex, because that's where it gets a little bit cloudy, right? When people think sex work, they think actual sex. And that's not always the case.
0: I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) There's someone like Justice who said that. Yeah, that's amazing, right? Yeah. So one important note on this definitely is that these are voluntary and agreed upon transactions. We're not necessarily talking about sex work. As it relates to things where there are involuntary exchanges that look more like trafficking and other forms of exploitation, although that'll that'll come up as part of the topic. But trafficking and exploitation are not what we would consider sex work. Those are separate topics, and we will talk about those. Absolutely. But when we're talking about sex work, these are interactions that are not coerced by the buyer or by the seller. It is consensual and mutually agreed upon conditions of that exchange.
1: Yep. Absolutely. So this is like, like signing a contract. This is an agreement for goods. Like, so, so you can kind of approach this the same way that you would say, like, when you go to a grocery store and you want to purchase goods from a grocery store, there is a, a monetary, there's a resource exchange in that space. And it's a voluntary resource exchange. This is the same thing when it comes to sex work, It's voluntary resource exchange. Now, when we talk about sex workers, we're talking about somebody who is currently employed in the sex industry, which is a huge booming industry and sex industry is sometimes also called the sex trade. And that includes some kind of businesses that provide sex related products and services can also include adult entertainment. And there are a lot of different examples of what this might look like.
0: Yeah, actually let's, let's list some of the examples of the, the things inside of the industry that are included in the category of sex work. So we've got mm-hmm. one of the most common that will be a large topic of this conversation is street-based and also indoor prostitution, or it's, mm-hmm. you know, actual exchange for some kind of sexual favor. You've
1: also got escort work,
0: which is a little bit different. There's not always an exchange of sex within that that relationship. Of course, one that Blink One Eighty Two sings about is phone sex. Uh, you mm-hmm. can call someone and essentially have a conversation that is related to either pretending to have sexual relations or describing sexual relations or something of that nature.
1: Yep. You've also got exotic dancing. You know, you work at like strip clubs. Within this too, you can actually loop in burlesque dancing, which doesn't include nude dancing, but it is part of that kind of
0: overall genre. You got webcam modeling, which, so I guess you can start to see where some of these start to blend together a little bit because you could do exotic dancing on webcam (laughs) and other things, but you know, essentially just people who pose in particular ways for a viewing audience, but they otherwise don't have any direct contact.
1: And also adult entertainment films, so like pornographic films and all that, and also publications too. All of that's part of the sex work industry. Now, we kind of mentioned this before, is this industry is a large industry, and the act of sex isn't always involved in sex work. So when we talk about sex work, we're talking about the inclusion of work around fetishes, which are sometimes sexualized, but not always including sexual acts. I specifically, I had some friends that worked in a factory that would ship toys. They would ship like adult toys. So that's part of the sex industry where it's like the selling of, of sex toys and devices. And they would get requests for that, that accommodated specific fetishes. Like people who had urine fetishes would ask for the workers in the warehouse to pee on the toys before they were sent off and stuff like that. And so, so, you know, like it was one of those things where it's like, there's no contact there. There's an exchange of goods, there's specific requests and and it's not even sexual in nature. It's just an exchange based on a fetish.
0: Sexual in nature again being sort of subjective without a clear definition because it you know it could be yeah but essentially the intimacy of the exchange is maybe the important part there yeah but that essentially covers the the sort of background just on the the kind of things that we'll be describing elaborating more as we talk about how that process works but I also think an a very important piece of this is to start to dig into the history of sex work, how it has come about, where it started as far as we know, but as you said, is probably one of the oldest forms of exchange that we've that we could even <laughs> conceive of. I mean, this yeah. is probably even predates like alcohol and how prevalent it has been in the most preliminary forms of human civilization.
1: Yeah, well, you think about it like in the work that we do, we talk about the idea of praise and praise being like something that's portable and you can carry it with you. And it's like a renewable resource, like you never run out of it, right?
0: Also, one of the most important biological, I think, rewards that has uh, enabled <laughs> our species to go on. Is, yeah. Like, it's one of those things where you don't have to learn that this is something you want to do. We come pretty well, as you say, hardwired with the uh, the desire and ability to to do this
1: <laughs> yeah i was just to say there are pretty powerful reinforcers related to the what we're talking about so let's go ahead and dig into the history going all the way back to 2400 bc and looking at some sumerian records that talk about the idea of prostitution and so there is an accounting of sex work as far back as 2400 bc all the way through 499 BC, the Sumerian culture had a word for a female prostitute. It was karkid and karguru for male prostitute or entertainers. I'm sorry, kergaru as a male prostitute or entertainer. And some think this is a reference as a direct relation to temple services. So a lot of times temple services might have included prostitution services within that. And the reason this is linked to the idea of an occupation is that the term karkid is found in the list of other occupations that include Lady Doctor, specifically Lady Doctor, Scribe, Barber, and Cook. So so you'll see that their word for prostitution is linked in with other formal and recognized occupations.
0: Side note, Sumerian Records is also a record label. You <laughs> mm-hmm. can find such, hit, such hits as Car Kid and Kurgaru. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then
1: uh, whatever math Dillinger escape plan decides to put together and write a song about. Exactly, yeah.
0: <laughs> Eleven over sixteen tenths. Yeah, All right. Well, oh, the worst, worst time <laughs> signatures. I cannot keep up with that band. I actually loved Don't Just say I do too. I love that band, but I don't understand it. Uh, uh, the next one we do have, move, moving away from Sumerian records, we have as many people may have heard the term Hammurabi's Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes back to 1780 BC, also called BCE, mm-hmm. which stands for Before Current Era. Well, heavy handed at time, this code specifically outlined the rights of prostitutes as well as the children of prostitutes, not children prostitutes, but the children that prostitutes have. Mm-hmm. It would outline those specific codes for their rights. In this code, prostitutes were referred to as sisters of a god, and their rights included ownership of property that may have been passed down. So it actually specifically sort of created the parameters for this, for sex workers, mm-hmm. they were essentially recognized as, as a profession. They had rights as a profession. They had considerations for the implications of that profession. So very practical.
1: Yeah. I'm a little upset that you didn't catch the heavy handed joke about Hammurabi's code.
0: Uh, oh, boo. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's it's fine. It's fine. I was like, heavy handed is just a great, a great term for that, given that it was very much so you would lose your hand for stealing.
0: Right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: anyway, sorry. we're moving on. We're moving on. I'm not that funny. So the code of Ashura or Astra in 17, uh, I'm sorry, 1075 BCE. What we found in this code is that there were laws that focused on dress code where prostitutes were not to be veiled in public compared to wives and daughters. Wives and daughters were veiled. And you start seeing kind of more restrictions come in at this point in time. And the punishment at this time was that veiled quote unquote harlots were to have their clothing seized and be met with 50 blows and also. They were tarred, you know, so as you start to kind of see we move towards like a more current era, you see more restrictions and more like stigma related to sex work and prostitutes specifically.
0: So much less considered in terms of being a legitimate, I guess, profession at this point. Yeah. At least in this part of the world. Now, moving to another part of the world, we have the legal brothels in China and ancient Greece around 600 BCE. There were these businesses, there were commercial brothels that existed in China. They were established by Quang Cheng to help increase the state income, mm-hmm. essentially recognizing like, if people are going to pay for this, we want the state to get a piece, you know? <laughs> yeah. In Greece, Solon did the same thing, founding, again, state brothels and taxing prostitution. And the cost was one obol, which was the sixth of a drachma. So, yep. no idea what that conversion rate looks like. Yeah, it's a simple, simple conversion there. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> Greece eventually developed the term heitairai, I'm going to call it. Yeah. Or a female companion as a means to describe this type of work. And so, these were, again, just recognizing sort of the, the pragmatic approach to viewing this type of work and incorporating it into the fabric of the sort of culture and society
1: with the roman culture coming in you started seeing more regulations and this is around 180 bce brothels were producing a source of income for folks and so caligula began to tax prostitution calling it the vectigal ex capturis which you know it's a shame that like such cool terms come out of this time frame when there's so, so many bad things were happening around this time too right like that sounds so cool vectigal ex capturis now prostitutes were to register providing their name, age, place of birth, and pseudonym under which they were practicing. And thus, Maximus Assius is born. <laughs> but I thought this was really cool that they they were keeping records of like, like almost like a license to prostitute, right? Like you had to be able to kind of like to do all these things and register to, to be able to do this. Now, this process also included counseling that would request more respectable applicants to change their minds before they entered this type of work. So they would find like younger women who wanted to enter and they'd be like, are you sure? Is this really the path you want to go down? So they actually established that kind of process too, which you know is not great, but it is something that kind of maybe set a precedent for other practices later or um you know it kind of gets bastardized down the line. But this is something they started doing, really the first recorded time they started doing this type of thing.
0: I think that should be the screening process for going to work at the TSA. <laughs> well, like, do
1: you really want to do this? Yeah.
0: Are you sure you want to be here? I mean, Maybe think about this a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm okay with the TSA, the Instagram that like makes fun of the stuff they find in people's bags. Like when they find like a grenade, they're like, you can't bring a grenade on and they'll like make like bad dad jokes. Like that's pretty good. But otherwise, yeah, no. I get what you're saying. No.
0: And I, and I, you know, I, it's obviously kind of a pain, but I, I honestly was just like, I, I just picked something out of the air to, to choose to throw into the bus. It
1: part. works. It works. I went through Canada's all their security. It's so easy. Yeah. It's like back in the day, like back when I, when I was like a kid.
0: I um, mean, just, just imagine it's, the, it's very know, strange. Awesome. So let's go to Justinian and Theodora. 534 CE is the year. Mm -hmm. And this saw, again, increased regulation, increased restriction. There was widespread banning of sex work practices and sex in public bathhouses, though it was suspected that Theodore herself may have been a former prostitute or sex worker. Nevertheless, bathhouses were going away.
1: This is also where the current GOP gets their political stance on sex work. hi This is where I need my rap horn. (laughs) That's right. I kid, I kid. So let's go ahead and look at the late 500s with the Visigoth criminalizing prostitution. So Rekered, a catholic king of the visigoths of spain which that was a mouthful to say yeah banned prostitution entirely and included debauchery so debauchery was also banned you could not be debaucherous and punishment included a flogging and expulsion from the town so they were actually banning people from the towns if they were engaged in any sort of type of like this identified sex work or anything debaucherous
0: and the theme here i mean this is is almost just entirely sex related like there was there was bans on things like, and not not necessarily in the same place, but over time, people have gone have tried to enforce bans on masturbation, mm-hmm. bans on obviously same sex acts, bans on even coveting, you know, even looking yeah. at other people. They're like, oh, you're you're trying to, you know, get in their pants. Mm-hmm. I think they even tried to ban certain positions of sex, like what, what positions were available. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, I don't know how you go about enforcing that sort of thing. <laughs> I don't even really want to speculate, but second of all, like you can see that like it crosses a lot like, I already think that the restriction of the banning was absurd, but it crossed the line into absolutely asinine pretty quickly. Anyway, moving on to the the Holy Roman army, In 1158 CE, they're punishing prostitution now. So anybody who was caught in the act of prostitution would be relieved of their noses quite frequently (laughs) that I got your nose Uh, forever. (laughs) Yeah, pull pull it off. So for soldiers paying for services, they would lose either a finger or an eye. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this more, but these things just don't don't stop people from wanting sex. Yeah, they just get sneakier.
1: And this also probably leads to the episode that we'll do later down the line on the crusades and how they weren't effective, right. <laughs> but they were really kind of an awful moment in history. But, the, but this is one of those things where it's like, so, okay, so now all you're doing is you're producing a group of people that are going to resent you for what you've done and also continue to do the thing they were doing.
0: And the people who are making these laws are probably paying for sex work on the side.
1: Right, 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 right. So again, <laughs> the current platform of a political party has found... This is where they get the model from.
0: <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of one of the scenes that resonated with me from the movie V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. is when one of the high-ranking officials was a, was some religious figurehead, and to infiltrate, they dress up the character Evie, I think was her name, mm-hmm. as essentially a sex worker as a child, mm-hmm. because like that was his thing, and they're like, "Sorry, she's so much older than you're used to," and I'm just like, Ugh. "Yeah," Ugh. but you know, while at the same time, you know, preaching about. All these, you know, this moral code and code of ethics and like that tends to be what happens is these people who, Matt <clears throat> <at> Gates, <laughs> <laughs> claim to have this this moral superiority while behind closed doors are doing all the things that they're railing against.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So moving on, England and Castile begin regulating prostitution and France bans it between 1100 and 1300. So Henry II begins regulating stew houses or brothels, would much rather call it a brothel, stew house not my favorite term for this. <laughs> That's so gross. It it, it's, it just elicits so many thoughts. I'm just like, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Do and I'll. these places were closed on holiday, kind of like a historical Chick-fil-A. So they were <laughs> shut down for holidays. Now, Alfonso, the ninth regulations were more harsh and actually started exiling anyone who were supporting or helping prostitution within the kingdom. And then in 1254, France outright bans prostitution, citing women who engaged in prostitution as women of evil life. This was done by King Louis the Ninth, who was part of the Crusades. So again, notice a pattern here. Kind of starting right. to pick
0: up what's going on here. You know, and this actually does speak to a point that is unrelated to this directly, but France has so frequently been sort of joked about as being this like hypersexual, super open, like Burning Man government style yeah. place. And they really, they really aren't any different than any other country. Like f- France is... They're just a place. And honestly, a lot of the taboo, I guess, acts that are attributed to France were just slurs that were invented to slander France. Right. And so just to come to France's defense a little bit, how often they get used as sort of the punching bag for like, oh, you you harlots over there are, you know, so scummy and. Yeah. Do all of these crazy sex things. And they're just they're just normal people like anybody. So yeah. I mean I blame I blame Peppy Le Pew. <laughs> which is a uh,
1: horrible friend stereotype.
0: Uh, right, exactly. That's <laughs> another example of like this super predator, <laughs> basically, <laughs> depicted as a cartoon who understandably the pundits are very upset is not going to be in, in the new Space Jam movie because if there's anything they love, it's super predators. <laughs> yep. There you go. And so Moving on to the rise of syphilis. <laughs> see, see previous episode. Worst Star Wars entry. <laughs> this comes right between episode six and episode seven. The rise of syphilis. <laughs> so this is around the 1490s. It was also called the Great Pox. Mm-hmm. It was not so great. <laughs> there was a lot of damage that happened in Europe for the better part of nearly a hundred years as this was spreading rampantly. And um, people not even necessarily understanding what was going on, at least for a while. Yeah. That was something that, that certainly made people more concerned about promiscuity.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so you'll see kind of with this going on, so now you've got disease, like STIs, you've got all this stuff happening. And for the next 500 years or so, we start to see these similar trends. Like some countries begin to regulate the practice and allow for prostitution to occur, like Japan's red light districts or the Netherlands regulation in 1810. Other regions are going to outright ban the practice as a social evil, like St. Louis, Missouri. Enact strict punishments for the engagement and others still cite prostitution as the cause of infectious disease, like Britain's Contagious Diseases Act, which allowed for the arrest of prostitutes on the grounds of a public health threat. So you'll see that there's a lot of people are kind of like aggregating a lot of data and a lot of information or like just kind of like notions about this stuff without looking at what's actually happening. And it's not prostitution that's the issue. It's unsafe sex. It's really there are other causes for this and people are attributing sex and prostitution to these causes. And so we want to take a second to kind of switch gears and get out of the history and look at the current state of sex work. What does it look like today in 2021? What do we know and what do we understand about sex work today that, that is, I guess, kind of maybe not necessarily following this historical precedent?
0: Yeah. So if we look at prostitution legalized or illegal around the world, so from the information that we have, it's legal-ish in like 88 countries mm-hmm. and illegal ish in about 109 countries mm-hmm. and so some countries with legal prostitution so again this is why it's legal ish still might have specific restrictions taxations other regulations that make it so that while not entirely illegal is also not entirely available
1: yeah and then the u.s has pretty much outlawed it except for a few select counties near where abraham lives so party time
0: <laughs> that's right Come to Nevada, get yours
1: (laughs) Another comparison I would look at is like the legalization of marijuana in the United States, where like some states have like different legal requirements for it. Some states have flat out outlawed it. Some people, you have to have a medical marijuana card for it. Like, you know, like there's a difference between like, let's say Georgia, Florida and Colorado, right? Like Florida has medical marijuana. I don't know that Georgia does yet. And Colorado is just totally recreationally illegal. So, and that's kind of what the world has done. Right. Like yeah. some places are flat out legal. You can just go and hire a prostitute without any issues. Some places it's it's highly criminalized. And so it still happens. It just happens kind of under cover of darkness. And then some places, it, there are different regulations and whatnot.
0: Such a good example. Uh, marijuana is also legal in uh, or cannabis, I think, is maybe the preferred term. In Nevada as well, completely recreationally. Yeah. That just feels normal now. It's been that way for a couple of years. Yeah. So again, Nevada party time. <laughs> yeah. Nevada rules. And it's funny because you know, even just a few years ago, that wouldn't have been the case because that every you know, it was completely banned. So it's I think that's an especially good example of sort of showing the different types of legality where it can exist. Yeah. And I was trying to think of other examples of things that are sort of another analogy to this. And I was thinking gender is turning into one. Gender is yeah sort of banned in some places.
1: Yeah, it's kind of wild, Georgia. Yeah. So with that, like we want to take some time to talk about some current stats and facts just to kind of give you an idea of what this might look like, too. And and right now, there are an estimated 42 million prostitutes worldwide, which means there are roughly 167 potential customers for each prostitute. So the need is there, right? They're always going to be busy.
0: (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a bit. Interestingly, in the United States, Atlanta has the largest sex economy of all U.S. cities studied with about two hundred and ninety million dollars brought in annually through legal sex work means Miami is second. And this surprises me tremendously because how much is in like in Southern California and specifically Hollywood? Yeah. A lot. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So much. So the fact that it's more in those places is a very surprising fact to me. And, oh, and side note, Dallas is number one for guns and drugs. Weird. Yeah. Shocking, right?
1: Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that Atlanta was, but then I started thinking about it and I was like, well, it is a comparable city to New York and to L.A., like in size and density and all that and like and all that. But they also have one of the largest film industries similar to L.A., but there are more restrictions to the film industry in LA than there might be in Georgia. So like that, I'm thinking like that might be part of it. It's hard to say exactly why, but my friends who lived in Atlanta worked in a warehouse. That's where the warehouse was, like where they were like yeah. selling sex toys and stuff. So I, I imagine there's like a large production line there too. So
0: yeah, interesting.
1: But. The problem is, is these are these data that we just talked about are all through legal sex work. So it's really difficult to gather data on underground markets because there a lot of times it's illegal. There might be some going back to history, debaucherous types of things happening. But the idea is that it's very difficult to gather data from folks that are illegally engaging in this type
0: of sex work. Yeah, surprisingly, it's hard to they don't publish their stats anywhere easily found online. Right, right, right. Without like ruining your Google algorithm.
1: So. In the UK, about 12% of sex workers identify as male. So, so it's not entirely female, right? There are male sex workers that engage in all the same types of sex work that female sex workers do or trans sex workers do. But 12% identified as male, which I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, big little male gigolo. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Great. Right. Greatest right. movie ever made. <laughs> in a few studies, it was found that most sex workers are not trafficked less than 6% or most of them are also not on drugs we'll get to more sort of myths that we will debunk here in a moment, but just some uh, useful piece of information.
1: Now, the largest problem with legal sex work is homelessness. That's what you'll find the biggest challenges within this this group of people that, that work in sex work, which also sees a higher prevalence of drug use. So homelessness actually leads to more illegal sex work. It leads to more illegal drug use. And about two thirds of those who are homeless and engaged in sex work are using illegal drugs regularly. So you find this like kind of, this really dark circle of folks that are identifying as homeless or or struggling with homelessness, having to engage in these types of acts to exchange goods, to, to get shelter, to get safety. And these data are pulled from countries where sex work was criminalized. So this is an important piece too. This is an area, these are data, these are statistics that are pulled specifically from countries, from cities, from States that criminalize sex work entirely. Also, too, when it comes to sex work, in illegal sex work specifically, there is something called proceeds of crimes laws, and so so states in the United, like specific cities and states within the United States, will benefit and they'll profit from raiding or arresting or convicting prostitution. So if they go in and they shut down an illegal brothel, there are like police incentives for capturing folks who are engaged in prostitution, for convicting them, and from from breaking down these illegal brothels or capturing like these uh, these like illegal criminalized sex work rings that are not criminalized in other countries right we're not talking about legal sex work where we're talking about human trafficking and all that we're talking about prostitution we're talking about cam work we're talking about those things like that voluntary agreement right where there are no victims right it's illegal it's criminalized and now police profit from those so there is like a, a little bit of a A problem there because, of course, we're going to keep it illegal because we make money off of this.
0: The problem with a lot of these things, when you have people who are fighting against something that's clearly wrong, is that whenever a system is is established, a niche will immediately evolve to capitalize financially on that system, even if it's a broken one. And so there are going to be people who argue against this and their motives are they want to keep making money. Yeah. You know, and so keeping it illegal keeps money flowing into a particular set of hands, making it legal changes the direction of that money completely. Yep. And so it just, you know, following the paper trail there is always important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about Amnesty International. Yeah. You didn't think that was going to get in here, did you? <laughs> what? <laughs> huh? <laughs> so calls for the decriminalization of prostitution and sex work from Amnesty International occurred on, on May 25th of 2016, and it is recommended that groups who seek to end prostitution stop their pursuit of this as an end goal. And citing these groups being a primary source of inequality and harm to women and other sex workers, really showing that the push to ban this, to make it illegal, to regulate it, to restrict it, to, I guess criminalize it was really mm-hmm. the the end you know is, is what they're doing is resulted in harm it is actually it is not stopping the thing that they want to stop and it is resulting in harm for the people who were involved and so that's that actually leads us i think very nicely into a discussion of essentially what are the myths about this and trying to debunk and offer some facts in place of those myths
1: In a key point that you'll find here, this is something we'll probably talk about in the take home points, too, is that criminalization is often has the leading most harmful policies that in the sex workers that are working in those spaces where it is criminalized. That's where the most harm is occurring. So. Let's go ahead and tackle a couple things, though, because I, I think it's important to debunk, like, you know, because there's all people always kind of talk about, like, well, how could you get into that? You must have been damaged as a child. You must have psychological distress. You must da 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 da. And here we go. Okay, we're gonna get, we're gonna tackle all of these fun myths about sex work. The first one: sex workers have more mental health concerns than those who do not engage in sex work. That is a myth. Now, let's look at some like facts about this. Okay. Okay. Chudakov, at all, in 2002, basically says it's not what you think. Sex workers who are entered the work voluntarily were not identified as suffering from mental health concerns, but had either developed it as a result of more dangerous aspects of the work or had been exposed to a previous trauma like trafficking, which created a unique path into the work. So maybe what happened to them was if they had any sort of mental health concerns, it was not from the work itself. It was from exposure to danger or from exposure to trafficking or something like that. Now. This particular study identified 55 women working in brothels. 82% of the women had arrived at the location illegally and had been trafficked in, okay? So 82% had been trafficked into these brothels, but 17% of them had already had PTSD and 19 were clinically depressed, okay? So of all the folks came in, Less than a, than a fifth of them had any sort of mental health issue, and also assumptions of childhood abuse were ruled out in this study. For those folks that were part of the study, none of them had childhood abuse that led them into sex work.
0: It's sort of like people who enforce parking laws; like they didn't become bad people because they <laughs> they got that job. They started as bad people and found that job.
1: Just kidding. <laughs> I was to say, like, I was like, do you have a thing against parking parking officers, park enforcement?
0: <laughs> It's it's the, whole, it's the whole system. But but I also don't. That's not a very good analogy, because that implies that I'm I'm describing sex workers as being bad people. And they're absolutely not. They're they're right. just people. Right. They're people who are who are finding a living. And I think if it if it's not clear at this point, it will be made more clear as we talk about it. And I definitely want to state it explicitly now. That we're 100 percent in support of people who are sex workers as viable, legitimate professionals who are people just they're doing a job like any job. Yep. It doesn't make sense to demonize them any more than I was just demonizing people who enforce parking attendance <laughs> or any any job, you know, people who who do some kind of work. That seems questionable morally, but like there's really no reason to view them as anything other than people who are just doing a job. Yeah. And I'm not making any judgment at all on the the morality of this. I I don't think that there is any judgment to be made, although maybe against parking enforcement.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think (laughs) I think the stance we take is if we can reduce harm, there are ways that we can reduce harm for the folks that work in this profession, just like we would do with any other profession where harm was happening.
0: Yes, well said.
1: That's really kind of what we're looking at here is like sex work is legitimate work. Yeah. There is harm that goes along with certain aspects of sex work that we have to understand. And if we can prevent that, one of those things that we can prevent is the criminalization of sex work.
0: So speaking more to these, these concerns about mental health, let's take an example of in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Sex work is not illegal. So it's it's legalized. It's at least decriminalized there. Most sex workers there enjoy their jobs. They get paid well. They have no plans to leave their industry. This is according to Rossler and colleagues in 2010. However, the same study found that nearly 50% of workers reported a mental health concern, with most reporting either mood disorders and anxiety, and a few reporting PTSD. An important note, though, is none of that had to do with sex work. It was just simple correlation. just happened to be the case. Some researchers identified the other factors, for example, country of origin, the places that they had worked, so like street work, studios, brothels, level of support and level of violence. And so really showing here that just it wasn't the fact that that was their job. That was that the, it was a cause effect relationship with their, their mental health. It was really just there were other factors for those people, as we sort of had described earlier on.
1: And that's the thing is like, is there mental health concern within sex work? Yes. Is it because of sex work? Not entirely. Right. That's what they're saying in Switzerland. It's like their mental health concerns had nothing to do with the sex work. It had to do with other factors that were related to their life. Like, just life was stressful. Yeah. So, let's tackle myth number two that sex work is dangerous. Okay. So, when we look at this globally, 45 to 75% of sex workers have a chance of experiencing some kind of violence, unfortunately. So, that's a pretty high percentage of folks working in sex work. However, this occurs in more criminalized forms of sex work. Okay. So, this isn't happening in decriminalized. Sex work this is happening in criminalized forms where workers are not protected. So for instance, in Phoenix, Arizona, 37% of participants in a prostitution diversion program report being raped or assaulted by clients and 7.1% report the same of pimps. Okay. So in New York, over 80% of street based workers experience some violence. And here's the, here's a key factor here in both of those places it's criminalized. And in both of those places, they're talking about street based work where prostitutes can't report. Because if they report, then they're not believed. There's a stigma with prostitution and they were engaged in a legal act. So they don't have any support to back them up. They can't say they were engaged in a legal act and confess to an illegal act and then expect there to be justice for this person that did this thing. Unfortunately, those protections don't exist a lot of times for folks that work in this space.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's that there is no system of protection for them in those places where it's criminalized. So it makes sense that people are able to get away with violence toward those people, which would be the case, honestly, for anybody mm-hmm. who was trying to work in a space where they had no protections that were in place for them is they're at a much higher risk of encountering some kind of violence or trauma. And this actually, you sort of raised a point in here that is is definitely worth expanding upon just a little bit, is people have made the argument that you can't rape a sex worker or a prostitute. This is absurdly ignorant because yes. anything that is non-consensual, that is sexual contact is non-consensual sexual contact. It doesn't right. matter what your job is. Right. That is absurd. So you absolutely like any act of violence that is sexual in nature or otherwise toward these people is inappropriate and it would be rape if it was non-consensual sexual acts. And yep. so that just to, to make sure we're clear on that idea. Yeah. That would be considered rape.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Another point here. And this is a very important one to make, as we sort of alluded to this earlier, is that sex workers are much more vulnerable to police violence just globally. Right. So in Kyrgyzstan, 90% of sex workers report assault by officers. In Bangladesh, 52 to 60% of workers report being raped by men in uniform. In the United States, 30% of dancers and 24% of street-based workers reported being harassed, abused, and raped. By clearly identified police officers. However, going back to this point, in places where sex work is well-regulated, decriminalized, and otherwise there's infrastructure, we see there is a decrease in violence and harm toward the sex workers themselves. A pretty dramatic decrease, in fact. Yep. And so this is exactly the problem as we get into this, is the issue where there's not support if there's not a system of support if it's criminalized if it's deregulated if it's restricted if it's made to be taboo or morally incorrect people are going to do it anyway mm-hmm. but now they can take advantage of the fact that there are no repercussions for their actions or they might even try and you know cover up their actions by doing violent things yeah and so it is making this this thing that you know sex is is a natural part of being a human mm-hmm. that. Making that criminal means that people are just going to do it in secretive, violent ways. And I think that's the final point to this section about sex work
1: being dangerous is that there is some variation in that sex worker vulnerability, right? Sex workers become more vulnerable and maybe more exposed to violence when they have direct client contact in criminalized spaces, when there is criminalization of that sex work. And when you're talking about street-based versus indoor-based sex work, right? So street-based sex work is gonna produce a higher level of of exposure and stigma, but those are all specifically related to the type of sex work and the criminalization in those spaces now the next myth that we want to talk about in tackle is that there's a higher risk of stis and stds and sex work it's simply not true false false (laughs) myth busted it's simply a result of exposure, not the work itself, right? So like for folks to get an STI, you have to be exposed. And if you are exposed more often then sure, you have a higher chance in general to contract something like that. But this also includes safe sex practice, right? So like most times that when you have somebody who's working at sex work, they're engaging in some type of safe sex practices. And also, you know, the exposure part of this has to include the type of act that's being performed. So, for instance, one study found that L.A. porn stars have a higher STI rate than Nevada prostitutes, where sex work is decriminalized and regulated. Right. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So it's legal here. And yet with the the brothels and sex workers and places where sex is, is available in the counties where it's available, which is most of them, Mm -hmm. there is a lower rate of STIs among those sex workers than even in places where you have an entire adult entertainment industry. And it is because with the regulated process, they are kept protected. They are to use safe sex practices. They are frequently tested for STIs, meaning that they're very unlikely to catch or spread them. Mm -hmm. And so you're much more likely to get an STI going to a fraternity party (laughs) than going to a brothel. Yeah. Pretty much anywhere. But, but yeah. So, (laughs) at least in in Nevada, that's the case. Yeah. So, for now, we will not get into the pitfalls and concerns of unethical practices in adult entertainment. There is, there's a lot to unpack there that would be a bigger conversation and definitely relevant one. But we, we want to, we won't dig into that any further here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a whole podcast series on its, in itself. But, The one thing we want to kind of point out here is that when it comes to STIs, there's actually a lower rate of STIs in sex work compared to the general community. So just keep that in mind,
0: particularly where it's regulated and legal and decriminalized.
1: Another myth. Decriminalizing sex work will make people think trafficking and coercion are okay.
0: No, 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 no. (laughs)
1: Mm, 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 uh -uh. So actually allowing more rights and support for the industry would make it less novel, less restricted and create a pathway for safe and consensual sex. So for example, in Thailand, prostitution and sex work is unionized and has seen a reduction in coerced and underage sex work in India where underage or trafficked persons are found in brothels. There are services and supports designed to help them get out of brothels and, and get counseling and get services and supports to help support them and heal from the traumas they may have experienced as a result of those things. So in those spaces where it's, it's decriminalized and there are supports, you have an entirely different consideration, an entirely different outlook on sex work in general.
0: Let me frame this in sort of looking at what is the entailed implication of this approach here. If you support decriminalizing, legalizing, and regulating sex work, then you have these outcomes where you have people who have the system of support that they need for things to be safe. If you oppose that, if you fight decriminalization and you fight to make it illegal and criminal, you are supporting child trafficking, sex trafficking, rape, STIs, drug abuse, Mm -hmm. and human exploitation. That is the implication of taking the position. If we've shown with plenty of evidence and data that supporting the industry leads to less pedophilia, to less STIs, to less violence, then fighting against that means you are supporting an increase in those things. Right. So just take that into consideration that an opposition to this is propping up things like sex trafficking and child prostitution.
1: And just to be clear, to go back to our definition at the very beginning of this episode about sex work, we're talking about voluntary exchanges where people can provide consent, right? Children cannot provide consent in these spaces. Exactly. Exactly. Pedophilia cannot exist in sex work. That is such a good point. Right? So trafficking is non-consensual. Like that is non-consensual. That is not part of an arrangement or agreement that somebody would consent to. So that is not part of legal
0: sex work. This is, I think, maybe tangentially related But animals also can't provide consent. So this would not support the use of animals for sex work either. Yes. (laughs) Just like to be very clear on that, because I think a lot of people will try and make a straw man argument out of what this would mean. This means you have adult people who are independently voluntarily choosing this and are in non coercive situations. And if they find themselves in a coercive situation, have the means and the support to get out of it safely
1: nailed it dr abraham nailed it <laughs> thank
0: you so that's just the important i think understanding of the implications of these considerations
1: i'm going to take a sidebar real quick we do have a little bit more to cover but i'm going to take a sidebar and just say that that when i started putting together notes of this episode i had a feeling that abraham and i's values would match on this in our and like our perspectives but but we don't know each other that well true we've been doing this for a long time we don't know each other that well so i had no idea how this was going to go and i'm so thankful to do this podcast with you knowing that we share that value of like valuing life and just treating people in like common sense and logic so that feels good so
0: (laughs) well thanks I love you too, buddy.
1: (laughs) I love you so much. The last point that we want to talk about is that a lot of times sex workers are told, it's said that they can't have intimate relationships or they can't have meaningful relationships. And that's just uh, 100% bogus. Yeah. Plenty of sex workers engage in close intimate relationships. Porn stars marry porn stars. Some sex workers work as couples. Here, my eyes roll at the ludicrous accusation that sex workers cannot have relationships. It's absurd. Can you hear them roll?
0: (laughs) I hear the squishy sound.
1: (laughs) (laughs) so you know it it, the the thing is is the issue that this i guess highlights is that people tend to think of traditional relationship standards right and ultimately the issues that that people have in this work come from general issues communicating and disclosure of the work that's where a lot of the the problems in sex work comes from is like people aren't disclosing the type of work they do they don't communicate that there's no agreement on the nature of the work there's insecurity in the relationship those are the problems with the relationship not the sex work itself not the sex worker. The sex worker can have plenty of relationships and plenty of good, intimate, important relationships when those things are met, right? When there's no insecurity, when there's communication, when there's agreements on what the work is and all that, like as long as that's there, shouldn't be a problem. And that's common for every relationship that somebody would engage in.
0: Exactly. You marry a politician, you know what you're getting yourself into, and you might find that that's just not the life for you <laughs> You know, right. once once you get there. I mean, that's, that's all it is. Exactly. And so it's like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. The job itself, like if that's something that you can't hang with as a spouse, then like that's going to be a problem, regardless of what the profession is. If that's a problem for you personally, just you know, saying that these are not an- endemic to sex work, that these are part of any relationship, just as you said. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit of science here, a little bit more mm-hmm. than we've already been talking. Yeah, to put this very simply, there is a very powerful. Resource exchange, meaning that the output, the resource itself is extremely valuable Mm -hmm. where one person has a resource, the other person has a need. And then they essentially leverage that dynamic to have both people mutually benefit from that exchange. Yeah, right. Absolutely. That's a very simple sort of black and white description of what's taking place.
1: Part of this too is, is within that exchange, sex itself is a renewable resource like attention, like it's portable. You can carry it with you, wherever you go, you can carry the responses and the outcomes with you into a variety of places. That's why we have public sex and all that. And all you need is yourself or someone else to make it happen at its base engagement. That's all you need, right? Like you need one person and maybe another person, right? And that's the base engagement. That's the base interaction. That you see within any sort of sex engagement or sex behavior. So, sex work would have any person who's working in that not have to prepare a, a suitcase full of things, right? Like, <laughs> like I think of like going to do a VB map. Like, I need this whole kit to go do a VB map. I don't need that if I'm doing sex work.
0: Well, that depends on the fetish, you're kid. yeah. It depends. <laughs> yeah,
1: it depends on the work I'm doing. Let's 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 add the nuance there. But but it's a renewable resource, and because it's a renewable resource, it is something that um is easy to to engage with.
0: I can see, like, what are you doing with a swimsuit, a bowling ball, and a bow and arrow? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the MacGyver of prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, motivations for the type of sex and sex work are going to vary, but they can be extremely powerful. Going back to the point that we made earlier, genetically, we are... Wired, if you will, to have motivation towards sexual activity. Mm-hmm. It's literally a survival quality of ours and it, it facilitates the propagation of our species. Mm-hmm. If we don't have motivation towards sexual activity, we would be much less likely to procreate. And as such, we would eventually dwindle off as a species. Look at pandas. You know
1: <laughs> they have like no motivation. They're like the laziest bears on the planet. I
0: know there's the whole line on in Fight Club about this, you
1: know
0: <laughs> right I think of so some like put a bullet between the eyes of a panda who wouldn't screw to save its species.
1: <laughs> That's it. Well, I mean, don't do that, but also, but right. that that explains why, like you have a, a species of of animal who's just kind of like endangered, right? and it, it literally for the fact that they just won't have sex.
0: Right. (laughs) It is something that is extremely natural. One of the most natural things of of our species. Like we've got the need to eat, sleep and make babies are like the three Mm -hmm. most powerful things that we have. Yeah.
1: It's a genetic evolutionary benefit to us to have a motivation for it. Right. Like it makes sense as a species to be motivated to have sex. Right. And I just always think of like, not to, I'm not even going to get into a religious debate, but the fact that like people want to suppress that, I'm like, it's genetic. It's a genetic thing. Like it's a survival instinct.
0: Oh, right. Anyway. And we know, you know, as, as a species with language and the ability to comprehend consequences uh, in the future, we know that th- that we have to then be smart about these motivations Mm -hmm. because we also know how to exploit our environment to get way more of a thing that, that is rewarding to us than is healthy for us to have. Right. And so that's why it's important for us to understand this is a thing we're going to do. Let's do it right. Let's do it safely. Right. And so like we can regulate, you know, it's, for example, we love the taste of sugar and like gummy bears, but you know, if, if all you eat is sugar and gummy bears, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that exactly. diet will kill you. And so we have to, we understand like, let's teach better eating behaviors. Let's set people up to make better eating choices mm-hmm. because if we just pe- feed people, gummy bears, like our species is going to die off, even though that's the thing yep. that we really, really like. Exactly. I think that's perfect. I think that nails it. Perfect. Uh, A couple other interesting little tidbits of information for you if you want to kick this off.
1: Yeah, I found this to be really fascinating because, you know, when we talk about like the stigma that goes along with sex work, but we put people on pedestals, you forget that like those people on pedestals might have also done sex work like Maya Angelou. Okay, she worked briefly as a prostitute and a brothel manager prior to making a career out of writing and changing the world. So Maya Angelou, the most one of the most influential poets of our time, spent some time working in sex work.
0: We found some information that there were others who did sex work, including, but not limited to, D.D. Ramone, Malcolm X, Channing Tatum, Lady Gaga, Cardi B, Chris Pratt, Brad Pitt. Wow, this almost seems like uh, spoonerism to make those names. (laughs) Right. And Roseanne Barr.
1: Yeah, I love this list. And my favorite thing is the quote from Roseanne. Not all of her quotes, just this one quote about sex work, where she specifically said, it's a way to make f***ing money. (laughs) <laughs> which I feel like works on so many levels. It does. That's a great joke. I mean, <laughs> right? That's a, it's
0: a great quote.
1: And the last little tidbit is that OnlyFans isn't the first, but it is considered one of the most influential platforms for sex sex work. And it's actually considered the first social media platform of this type of work, which is really interesting. Like, so you'll find this entire industry based on a user created bit of material. It's like when uh, Bandcamp came out. Yeah. Like Bandcamp is like this website that allows bands to independently release music like OnlyFans is like this page that independently allows people to create levels and access sex work in a safe way, but in a way that they can they can actually make a pretty decent living off of it.
0: Democratization of these things is kind of cool. And and again, just creating a sort of voluntary platform where it's understood that this is adult content is, I think, a super legitimate. So,
1: and just to understand the power of only fans, I think this is something that I, this is an, another tidbit I found when I was l- looking at this, the cash me outside girl who went on to f- have a rap career. She was on Dr. Phil and she like was a meme and all that, you know what I'm talking about? Nope. Okay. You don't need <laughs> to. That's fine. Okay. But for folks who are listening, you might know this person. She was like, kind of like a bratty teen that like was like mouthy to her parents. And like one of those like troubled teens, like sent off to boot camp and all that. Well, when she turned 18, she started OnlyFans only fans and made $400,000 in a single day.
0: There you go. So just to kind of just to talk about the resource exchange that goes into that. So anyway, take home point is go out and start an OnlyFans account (laughs) and you'll get absurdly wealthy. (laughs) Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Get famous on Dr. Phil and then go do that. Yeah.
1: So some major take home points today, I I would say the big thing is that sex work is a legitimate form of business, right? It is a legitimate form of work and it can be something that is sustainable given the right supports, given the right structure, given the right context and and, and really having the decriminalization of it be a key factor to that. The less criminalized it is, the safer it is for folks. And I think that's an important uh, one of the probably the most important takeaway from
0: today. One of my main take home points is really just the the implication of that, which is that the, the criminalization of sex work, treating this as immoral, as wrong, as taboo, banning it, restricting it. And, you know, finding it, all of that sort, all of those sorts of things. What that leads to is violence, trafficking, and harm. It, it is an mm-hmm. increase in the availability and the opportunity to create harm. It does not prevent sex work from happening at all, but drives it into a space where people are less supported and more likely to, to be traumatized by their experience. Also, and a sort of related point here is that there are people who capitalize off this criminalization in a very gross way, mm-hmm. who exploit it who fight it and at the same time are sort of making a profit off of their abuse of that system.
1: That's where the, the insidious part of this lies is in the criminalized spaces for the folks that are operating underground. Yeah. Another take home point I would have too is that, that sex workers don't have a history of child abuse or mental illness that led them into sex work. Not all the time, mm. at least. That's a good point. If we're going to talk psychology, then understanding that the a lot of people who work in spaces where there is support and where there is that level of care. Enjoy their jobs. They get paid well. They don't plan to leave the industry. I mean, it, you see that in, in, in multiple environments. You see that in multiple spaces. And a lot of times the mental health concerns or the drug use or any of those things come from extenuating circumstances. It has nothing to do with the sex work itself. It has to do with X, Y, and Z outside of that. You know, they maybe had some previous traumas or they maybe had a diagnosis that's maybe exacerbated by the variables that go along with the criminalized sex work. So, you know, it just because somebody's working in sex work does not mean that they have some kind of mental health condition that led them there does not mean that they are drug users and does not mean that they have a history of child abuse that, that led them on that path.
0: Perfect. Anything else on this?
1: Nope. That's all I got on this one.
0: Cool. All right. Let's do a listener mail. Sounds good. All right. So we got this one from a listener named Olga. She said, I listen to your podcast regularly. I like it a lot. Thanks for making it very interesting. Thank you, Olga. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, uh, and happy to have you on as a, as a frequent listener. Love it. She goes on to say, I'm writing about the last episode about Pavlov. First, it was the first episode that my child listened to from start to finish. She then asked for more episodes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. As a behavior specialist, I'm constantly talking to my kid about stimulus control. I try and make this principle easy for her to understand. And listening to your episode about Pavlov, she recognized some ideas we discussed earlier. Awesome. Very cool. Super glad that that, uh, that resonated and, and connected with her. Yeah. And then the second part is very cool. So she says, second, I wanted to share my knowledge about Pavlov. She said, I lived in the USSR. It was normal for us that scientists were fired from their jobs when they talked with Western colleagues or mentioned some Western studies. Nevertheless, Pavlov was somehow never affected by the system, although in his days it was even stricter. He never stopped working prior or after the revolution. He's probably the one example of such successful scientists career in Russia. Oh, wow. And so... Yeah, super interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Olga. That was a a real gem of information to share. So I appreciate that. I love it.
1: It's one of those things where like we always I always love hearing like from our folks that are international folks. Not that we don't like hearing from our local folks, too, but our international folks always have such unique perspectives to share. And that's such a great little tidbit about such a such a a prominent person. I mean, I guess that's probably why we know Pavlov and maybe have a hard time hearing about other successful Russian scientists around that time.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, very good point. Yeah, we do have one that's not a full listener mail, but we, we had put out a call for recommendations on books addressing racism and someone reached out to you, Shane. Yeah.
1: So this listener mail comes from a Hobbit, a former student of mine, and said that they were reading a, a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. They specifically highly recommended this. I'm adding it to my reading list, and so uh, this must have come after we had recommended "How to Be an Anti-Racist" and talked about that book. So, uh, really stoked about that. So, thank you, Hobbit, for sharing that, and really excited to dig into that.
0: Yeah, I, I have that one, and now it's uh, it's scooted a little top, a little closer to the top of my list for books to read is when I finish the one I'm currently on. So, very good. All right, shall we do some recommendations? Let's do it.
1: recommendations my recommendation this week it came out on friday at the time that we're recording this so this has only been out for two days i've watched it twice since it came out and my recommendation is the new mortal Kombat movie
0: i'm gonna jump on this because i was also planning <laughs> to recommend the new mortal Kombat movie i didn't know or the Mortal Kombat movie as i wrote it <laughs> Mortal combat <laughs> that's right it's the uh, battle of the morales It's just Vision and Vision talking about the ship of Theseus again. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's right. Anyway, I didn't know what to expect from this movie. Of course, the other Mortal Kombat movies were like, they were so campy. And I mean, objectively bad. Yeah. But this was like the most fun and just like really fun action sequences. It was just the most delightful nonsense. Yeah. And I really had a lot of fun with it. It is rated R. So warning on that. Yeah. There's a lot. (laughs) This is a very gory movie.
1: Growing up with Mortal Kombat, like I, I remember when it came out and remember all the controversy it started. And I had the Sega version, which you had to enter the blood code to be able to see all the fatalities and stuff. Like I lived that space. So when the first Mortal Kombat movie came out, I was like, "This is not that good." And then when the second one came out, I was like, "This is even worse than the last one." So I, I'm <laughs> glad to see they're kind of like, like fixing that.
0: There was so much fun little fan tributes in here, fan service using some of the quotes from the Mortal Kombat games, like. Flawless victory.
1: Yeah, so he goes flawless victory. He looks at the yeah. camera and goes
0: flawless victory, and you're like, okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> but they also they set some of these fight scenes up almost like a side scroll game. It was so clever mm-hmm. where they essentially created like one of the fights that takes place is in like a training arena, and but it's set up as sort of a long. Narrow corridor, so yeah. it kind of looks like when you're doing the back and forth, the left and right side scroll sort of fighting. Yeah, in the video games, it was I don't know, it it was so much fun. I think that the way they set up their scenes were really clever, but also like they were del- they leaned into the campiness. They were yeah. very specifically trying to be like, this is gonna be a fun, silly video game movie. That's this nonsense, but we're it's gonna dump like self-aware. all the money. Yeah, very self aware, very self aware. Yes the CG work was great for most of it. I thought I just had so much fun with it. so if you are into campy action with good CGI and very little story and just a lot of fighting, this is the story. This is the movie for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had the thought during it that, um, I want to have the will that if I get murdered and my family gets murdered and I go to hell, I want to have the will that I can control the fires of hell just to get revenge on a single person. Like, I want that type of willpower. Like, I feel like that's maybe like PhD students have that. Where like the ones who actually graduate. You're like, you have that type of will. But I want that. Like, I want to have that level of just like, just I want to hold a grudge like that.
0: This this should come with a spoiler warning for for that comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Baby. Yeah, fun movie. Do we have anything else on our topic or on Mortal Kombat? Nope, not today.
1: No, I think that covers
0: it. I want to thank both of those uh, listeners for writing in. Thank you for the recommendation. Very excited to hear the extra news about Pavlov. So a little information for our listeners. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane, and awesome job on uh, on these notes, which Shane was primarily responsible for. If you would like to join us to support our podcast, you can join us on Patreon. So if you would like to join this cool list of cool people, uh, I'd like to say thank you, a special thank you to Justine, Selena, Megan, Mike, and Shauna for their support on Patreon. And you could, you too could get your name right on a list like this every week for as low as a dollar a month and on up. And that also gives you a- access to things like bonus episodes, our notes for the show, video recording of us sitting in our pajamas, making all kinds of flubs and gaffes, mm-hmm. unedited episodes, all kinds of fun stuff. So join us there. And uh, hey, if you aren't already, you should subscribe to our podcast where you listen to podcasts. We are aware that Apple is going to be changing their platform on this and Spotify as well. It seems like from what I'm understanding about this, that this is not going to dramatically affect your ability to access this podcast. I don't really know what it's going to look like moving forward, but we will be here come hell or high water as they say. Yep.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Cool. All
0: right. Thanks a lot. And I'll catch you next time. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash wwd podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd, WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes